We discussed last week the shipwreck of the Cimbria, a 19th century maritime disaster called the German Titanic that at that point was the worst civilian maritime disaster in history possibly. The ship was carrying about 500 people, uh, 400 or so died, only several dozen survived. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Titanic, the most famous civilian, perhaps the most famous civilian maritime disaster in history. Uh, one, of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous maritime disasters of any sort in history. The question is going to be the same question as last week. The question is going to be an Aguna question, a man who was presumed to be on the ship, who was missing and never heard from again. His widow wanted to remarry. The question was, was there sufficient basis in halacha to presume, to presume him dead? The Titanic is the most famous, probably the most famous maritime disaster ever. It was not the, not the most horrific, not the most lethal. I, I discovered, uh, I couldn't help myself from checking tonight. You know, the internet knows all, all such matters. What, what were the absolute worst by numbers of people killed maritime disasters? The worst occurred at least the greatest number of people killed occurred during World War II. The worst, the, the single greatest was a German, German ship, the Wilhelm Gustloff, torpedoed by a Russian submarine in 1945. Close to 10,000 people died, including some 5,000, 4 or 5,000 children. That was uh, between six and nine and a half thousand or so people died. Uh, that was the single worst, uh, highest cost of life in history. Germans, some soldiers, but also lots of children, as we said, other ships, Japanese ships, other German ships. But the Titanic is, of course, the one that has captured everyone's attention. The Titanic has had umpteen movies made about it, books. The Titanic, the details of the Titanic have been obsessively chronicled by, uh, by historians, professional and amateur. That actually will help us tonight in that the details of both the shipwreck itself and of the specific person whose fate we're discussing tonight in Halacha are actually, we know a good deal more about them than we do about almost any other, any other uh, Aguna Tshuva in history. The Tshuvas we're going to do tonight, we're going to do uh, mainly one Tshuva. That is by a Rabbi Jacob or Yaakov Meskin. Rabbi Meskin was an interesting, uh, in- interesting rabbinic personality. He was a Rav in the Ukraine. At the, at the beginning of the century, at the, time of the, at the time of our story, 1912, 1913, he was a Rav in the Ukraine. He eventually emigrated to the U.S., in which, in, in where he served as a Rav in Burlington, Vermont, for a few years. Then he moved to the Bronx in New York, and he served as a Rav in New York for a long time there. He was apparently a distinguished rabbinic personality. He, he knew Ramosha Feinstein. Ramosha Feinstein writes warmly about him as a as a Talmud Chacham and a dedicated uh, public servant. At the time, he was the Rav of a city in the Ukraine, a city called, a city called, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but it was called Novo Praha, Novo Praga, in the district of Kherson or Kherson in the Ukraine. And the widow, the widow of the man who disappeared, was a member of his community. The, the woman's name was Sivia Meisner, She's referred to in some, in some English articles as Sarah Meisner. She eventually, she eventually emigrated to the U.S. as well, where apparently she was known as Sarah. Her, her English name or her Western name was Sarah, but she is known as Tivia Meisner. Her husband was Shimon Meisner, or Simon Meisner, as he was, as, as he was, as he was known in the English documents. Simon Meisner, we know, as I said, a great deal more about him than we know about most uh, situations of Egon. The, the obsessive historians who have documented everything on the Titanic have had there's an entire Wikipedia page on something called on, on something called Encyclopedia Titanica, which gives you a complete biography of everything we know about Mr. Simon Meisner, born in Kiev around 1878. Details about his early life remain unknown before he entered he entered into history as a victim of the Titanic. He was married to Sarah Janhovsky. They had three children. Mr. Meisner was a tailor. He boarded the Titanic in Southampton, third-class passenger. 
there were actually a fair amount of Jews on the Titanic. Nobody knows, I think, exactly how many, at least several dozen, maybe several hundred. There were some famous rich Jews, Isidore Strauss, Benjamin Guggenheim. We know more about them, obviously. There were lots of third-class passengers. There, were actually, there actually was kosher food on the Titanic. How good the Heksher was, or what, the, what he did were followed, whether it was glott and no gebracht and all that, and Chal of Israel, I don't know. They actually had a Hebrew cook, and they had kosher food. And I, I read somewhere that kosher food may have been more popular in third class and first class. Apparently first class was a lot of assimilated, westernized uh, Jews. Third class had a lot of, uh, maybe had more pious, old school, traditional Jews. This Mr. Meisner apparently was in the latter category. How religious he was, I have no idea. But he was a, he was a Jew from the Ukraine whose wife apparently cared enough about uh, Jewish observance that she, that, she was, that, that, that she waited to remarry until she could get permission from, uh, from a Rav. So he, this tailor, Mr. Meisner, boarded the Titanic in England, in Southampton. He gave his previous residence as 29 Houndsditch in London, headed to New York City, and of course he never made it. The ship sank. His body was never recovered. His wife... I'm not going to keep you in suspense. His wife did eventually remarry. His wife also traveled to New York the next year. A few years later, she remarried to a fellow named Jacob Glazer, also a tailor from the Russian Empire. She was active in the Jewish community for a while. She uh, died eventually in 1956, buried with her husband in Newport, lived in Rhode Island. All right, so we, we have information about their children and grandchildren and so on. So this was the story. There was this Ukrainian couple... Shimon and Tivia Meisner, Simon and Sarah Meisner. She was home in the Ukraine. He was in England. He took a trip on board the Titanic to, en route to New York, never made it, and he was presumed dead. His wife petitioned Rabbi Meskin, Rabbi Yaakov Meskin, who was the Rav of their, their city in Nova Praha back in, uh, back in the Ukraine. He, uh, the woman was young, he says, and she had three children. And she, and she was left without support. Her husband, the breadwinner, had, had, had disappeared. He says, She keeps, uh, she keeps uh, pestering me. That's not, not a nice word, I guess. But she keeps on imploring me to, to, to tell her the din, din Torah, if she's allowed to remarry or not. Apparently a pious woman. Also, she was complaining to me, he says, How come I don't let her children say Kaddish? I told her children not to say Kaddish. The Kaddish itself is not primarily our concern tonight, but the basic idea is that we, even though the stakes of saying Kaddish are not very high, if someone says Kaddish and the husband is a, and the man is alive, it's not really a big deal. Nevertheless, the postcom are actually quite strict in not letting people say Kaddish for someone who is missing, presumed dead, if we don't allow the woman to remarry, for the obvious reason, that if we endorse the, the recital of Kaddish, that would be an implicit rabbinic endorsement of the proposition that the husband is dead, and that might cause the woman to remarry. Suppose we actually are quite strict that we don't want to give that impression. If, if we're not actually sure we have a heter to allow the woman to remarry, we don't want to, we don't want to give a heter for them to say Kaddish. So the woman was puzzled by this. My husband is clearly dead, she says. He was on the Titanic. It went down. He was never heard from again. So why can't they say Kaddish? Can I remarry? So I told her, he says, or my meskin says, I told her, these are very serious and weighty matters. I'm reluctant to issue a ruling on my own. However, he says, since it's very important, Chachamim uh, tried very hard to find Haterim for Agunos. So I made time, he says. I'm going to uh, look into this. I'm going to look into this matter carefully. And I'm going to try to look for a Heter. Note that he says explicitly, I'm going to try to find a heter. This is the, this is the textbook approach in Aguna. We don't pretend that we're neutral and that we're impartial and we're going to follow the halacha wherever it goes. We try to find a heter. Now, obviously, that means within the bounds of halacha. We're, we're not totally free. We're, 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 we're bound by halacha. But we are consciously and explicitly looking for a heter. We, we, we don't just say, let the chips fall where they may. We say we are going to try very hard to find a heter. Again, at least in the case where we're pretty sure intuitively the person's dead. If we're honestly not sure, we might not be so quick to look for a heter. 
But between me and you and the lamppost, the fellow was on the Titanic when it went down and he wasn't uh, discovered in a lifeboat and he didn't call home, it is very, very likely the person's dead. As we, as we discussed briefly last week, the, the way our Guna questions work is that we, they operate kind of on a dual track, formal and informal. We, we, we try to be convinced that the person's dead. Once we're convinced that he's dead, we also try to, we then try to construct a formal halachic argument that allows us to conclude that he's dead based on the halachic principles of Aguna. And we, but the point is that that halachic argument parallels the intuitive, informal conclusion that we're pretty sure that he's dead. So in this case, we're pretty sure that he's dead. He was on the Titanic. Most people died. Those who didn't die were, were recovered from lifeboats, and we know who they are, and, uh, and, and there are newspapers and telegrams, uh, telegrams and authorities involved, ship records, tickets, and so on. We're pretty sure that he's dead. The question is, can we construct a formally acceptable, halachically acceptable argument for his death, that was the question. As I mentioned last week also, this is the only tshuva that has been discovered that deals with an aguna from the, world, from, the, from the sinking of the Titanic. There were many Jews on board, but again, a lot of them weren't religious, and pr- presumably, and a lot of them weren't asking Shilas, or this is the one. This is the one discussion that has been discovered of, an aguna, of a tshuva about an aguna, an aguna on the Titanic. Rabbi Meskin is not, is not the... the is not a very well-known rabbinic figure from that time. However, he was a student of one of the Gedolei Hadar of that time. He writes now in the second paragraph, The Gaivad and Rosh Hashiva of Panovich. This is Rav Itzel Aponovitcher, the, the, the Panovitcher Rav was a, uh, not, not I mean, there, are, there, are, there are different people who are known by the Panovitcher Rav, but he was, Rav Itzel Aponovitcher was one of the Gedolei Hadar of that time, a, a tremendous Rosh Hashiva and Posik, Posik of that time. He was, the, he was the head of the Yeshiva and Panovitch at the time, he was the Rav of the city, he was, uh, he, 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 he was a leading halachic and rabbinic figure in Lithuania, and this Rabbi Meskin was a disciple of his, along with, he was also a disciple of Ramosh Mordechai Epstein of Slabodka. He was a disciple of these Gedolei Torah. He considered uh, Ravitsa not the Panovitcher Rav, that's usually Rav Kahneman later, but Ravitsa the great Rav and Rashiva Panovich, was his, was his rabbi. He wrote this tshuva to Ravitsa We'll see that Ravitsa wrote back and wrote a brief uh, note back to him. Rabbi Meskin's tshuva is much longer, it's about 10 pages, we're not going to go through all of it. Ravitzelah's tshuva was much shorter. He didn't know all the facts, a page or so. But, uh, so this is the tshuva he says. He published it in his own sefer, Rabbi Meskin. His sefer was called Beis Yaakov. He published this tshuva in his own sefer, and he also published Rav, he also published Rav Itzelapanovich's tshuva back to him. So, Rabbi Meskin wrote a long argument, a long series of arguments, actually, arguing that halacha allows us to conclude that Mr. Meisner was dead. Some of the issues are the same ones we discussed last week. Some of the issues are new. The, the tshuva itself is a little bit hard to follow. It's, it, it's not written in the most uh, polished style. It's a little bit rough around the edges. But nevertheless, we'll, we'll go through at least the, the basic outline of his arguments. Some of them, at least, we'll see the considerations that he gives. And it, particularly interesting will be the question of how accurate are his facts, based on what we know about the Titanic, how, uh, how, how correct are his assumptions about what actually happened on the Titanic. Some of, some of his analysis involve, just as we saw last week with the Cimbria, some of his analysis uh, assume specific things about how the Titanic went down and, and, the, and, and how the survivors did or didn't survive. We'll see. I, I have some, uh, I have some uh, problems with some of what he says. So let's see. Chuva, he says, the basic problem starts, similar to what we saw last week, the basic problem is the din of Mayim Shein Lem Sof. Waters without end, infinite waters. Not literally infinite, but this is the halacha. Mayim Shein Lem Sof means a person falls into water. He's probably dead. He wasn't in a lifeboat. He just fell into the water. His ship was wrecked. He was tossed overboard. We, we never see him again. He's probably dead. Most people who are in the water without a boat are going to die. But sometimes they survive. The Talmud has a couple of cases of, of Tanoim, of the Chachmei Mishnah who survived shipwrecks. Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Meir, one of them survived. He grabbed onto a piece of flotsam. He grabbed onto a daf shalsfina, a board from the ship that had foundered. 
and was able to float on it until he got to shore. Another one was just borne by the waves, was cast from wave to wave until he ended up on the shore. So the Gemara says, The Chamim were machmer, that on Mayim Shein himself, we have to be machmer. Mayim Sheyesh himself, meaning a person falls into a lake, we, the observer can see the edges of the lake, and he, and, he, and, he, and he didn't come out for three hours, obviously he's dead, because he can't survive underwater for that long. So Mayim Sheein himself is mutter, because there's no other possibility, he must be dead. Mayim Sheein himself, meaning we can't see the other edge of the water, we don't know what happened. Maybe he fell under the water, he swam a little bit under the water, and out of our, out of our field of vision he came out again. The classic case of a person falling into an ocean, or falling into a large body of water, that's called Mayim Sheein himself. It's a Chumrah, it's only a Chumrah Midrabanan. Midaraisa, we'd be allowed to rely on the presumption that he's probably dead, because most people there are dead. But this is where many, 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 many Agunachuva start from the fact that he disappeared in water. The water is Mayim Shein himself. He's probably dead, but we're not absolutely sure that he's dead, and therefore we have to be Machmer. That's where this whole discussion starts. That even though he fell into the water and he's probably dead, he might have lived. It's just within the. Re- within the realm of possibility, and therefore he is, might be alive, and we can't allow his wife to remarry without further proof that he's actually dead. Rabbi Maskin then quotes, this we saw last week as well, or Vitzel Khan Inspector quoted this as well, he quotes a tshuva of the Mabit. The Mabit was a contemporary of Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, who disagreed with him about this ruling, as we'll see soon, but the Mabit ruled in the 16th century, he said that if a person falls off a ship into the water, that's Mayim Shein Lemsof. But if a person is in his cabin, is in the ship, and the ship is flooded, the ship goes under, and, uh, and, and the, or, or the ship is flooded with water while he's in his cabin, that he can be confidently presumed to be dead, because as long as he was in the ship, that's not Mayim Shein Lemsof, that's like Mayim Sheyesh Lemsof, and we're allowed to presume him dead. We'll discuss soon why that is exactly, but that's what the Mabed rules, that the Mayim Shein Lemsof is if the person falls free of a ship into the water, if a person is in a ship and the ship goes under or the water floods the ship while he's still inside the ship, then he can be presumed to be dead. Says Rabbi Meskin, Im Kain, Titanic, in the ship Titanic, Yudu Alakol, everyone knows the story. The story based on the testimony of the survivors, surviving passengers and crew. The ship capsized due to a collision with a iceberg, as we call it. Chatichas glidu kerach, a chunk of frozen ice and, and frost. And so the ship was gashed and torn apart by an iceberg. V'techaf bo hamayim elasfina, the water immediately began to flood the ship. That's what took it down, the, that its, its compartments were flooded. V'sham nitvu ha'anashim v'loshin people were on the ship when it sank and they didn't fall into the water. Lomikri mayim shein lemsof, that is not called mayim shein lemsof. V'bavadei layatzalamakam acher, people were on the ship. He died on the ship, he, he sank in the ship. We have the Mabit, that is Mayim himself. This seems to be a completely inaccurate and erroneous understanding of what actually happened on the Titanic. Quoting a little from Wikipedia, In the aftermath of the sinking, hundreds of passengers and crew were dying in the ocean. People didn't actually drown. Drowning wasn't the real problem. People had life jackets. Many, hundreds of people were wearing life jackets. What killed them was the cold. It was 28 degrees Fahrenheit in the water, lethally cold. Uh, sudden immersion into freezing water typically causes death within minutes, cardiac arrest, uncontrollable breathing of water, cold incapacitation, not hypothermia actually, they say, but it's these other conditions. And you die of a heart attack or, the, or of other reasons within 15 minutes to a half hour. You just can't survive in water that cold. What killed most people on the Titanic Obviously, there were some who died from a variety of things, from being hit by fallen debris and from drowning. What killed most people, apparently, was that the water was freezing. Those who made it into the lifeboats, by and large, lived, because the lifeboats were stable, mostly, and they kept them out of the freezing water, and, and there was no real reason why they should die by the time they were picked up the next day. Those who went into the water were almost all dead, because you cannot survive in water that is that cold. There were a very, very small handful of people who went into the water, who actually were, did survive, because they were picked up by the lifeboats. Most of the lifeboats uh, rode clear of the ship and did not come back. Some of them did, and they, but they only picked up very few people. Most of them were dead by the time the boats came back. They picked up 13 people. Virtually everyone who ended up in the water was dead. 
The only ones who survived were the ones who made it back into the lifeboats. But the point is, Rabbi Meskin's claim that the people were by and large on the ship when it went down is simply not true. There were hundreds and there were there were about fifteen hundred. There were of the of the Titanic several thousand people. So the so there, there, there were thousands who died, and there were to quote the to quote the actual numbers for context. There were more than fifteen hundred people died, a little over fifteen hundred, and there were about twenty two hundred on board. So they, so several hundred, about seven hundred were were survived in the lifeboats. Fifteen hundred died. Of the of the fifteen hundred who died. Some of them died on the ship, some of them refused to leave the ship, some of them didn't make it out of the ship, the bowels of the ship, but hundreds made it off the ship, into the water. Right? Meskin's claim that everyone on the ship can be presumed to have been on the ship and not, uh, did not go into the water is simply false. Many, many people, hundreds of people, did make it into the water. Now, on the other hand, as we've been saying, if someone made it into the water, there's also a good reason to presume he's dead, because the water was simply too cold to survive. There are other Agunachuvas which discuss the... This is a factor for leniency, the fact that the water is so cold that the person couldn't survive in the water. Right? Maskin does not bring in the cold temperature of the water. That's an interesting omission. That would be one of the strongest arguments for the presumption that anyone in the water is dead because the body simply physically cannot survive in water that's that cold. But the, on the other hand, instead he makes this argument that the people who weren't in the lifeboats were in the ship when it went down. That was certainly true for some people, maybe hundreds of people, but it was also not true for other hundreds of people, so I, I, I am somewhat perplexed by, by this assumption, the application of the Mabit, to say that he was, uh, he says that they, they died on the ship, you do all the coal, that they stayed on the ship, they died on the ship. Some of them did, but many of them didn't, so I, I, I'm really puzzled by, he may not have understood the facts, but assuming he did, I'm very puzzled by why he just confidently asserts that they were on the ship when it went down, Many, many, many of them were not. Many, many, many of them jumped clear or fell off when it was going down and were not on the ship when it went down. Okay. Right, Maskin continues. Fafil Ludas Beis Yosef, the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, contemporary of Mabit, disagrees. The, the, the Beis Yosef makes a, a trenchant point about shipwrecks. He says, relates to what we just said, but he says, in order to decide that someone was went on the ship and it went under, even Mayim Shieshla himself, even if you have a case where the water is, where the water has, is bounded and, and the observer can see all around it, you still have to have an observer that watched, that said he was there and he disappeared under the water and didn't reappear for a long enough time that he can be presumed to be dead. If someone just saw him dive under the water and then three seconds later turned his back, even if the puddle is only a swimming pool, it's only uh, 50 feet by 50 feet, if you turned away, then who knows what happened? Maybe he ran out when you weren't looking and came out. So obviously, even Mayim Shieshla himself, which is Mutter, is only if you have an observer who is watching and, and, and can confidently report that, uh, that he didn't make it out. On a shipwreck, the base says, who's making this report? The other survivors? They have other things on their mind. They're busy running for their lives, he says. He says, in a shipwreck... The survivors, Amos, Mavis, Naflu Alav, they're all terrified for their lives. They barely made it, they barely make it into the lifeboats themselves. He said, nobody can have enough confidence that they, that they observed a certain survivor being stuck in the water for a long enough time that he's certainly dead. He might have some cases where a person left a spouse behind or a child and, is, and can't take his eyes off them and is watching and craning his neck the whole time. But in general, Rabbi Yosef Cairo says, the survivors of a shipwreck who are desperately making for the lifeboats are not going to have the focus and presence of mind to say, I can report uh, clearly and precisely that so-and-so was under the water for a certain amount of time. Therefore, we cannot generally rely on testimony of the survivors, he says, to give us the proper assurance that the missing person was in the water and was definitely dead. That's why the Beis Yosef did not like the... That's why the Beis Yosef did not like this hatter. However, says Rabbi Meskin, even though, according to this, you might argue that the survivors cannot, cannot tell us, that the survivors of the iceberg collision can't tell us, because they were desperate to get into the lifeboats themselves. However, he says, no. He makes a distinction I don't fully understand, but he says that in the case of the Beis Yosef, the question was whether Adim could testify that they stayed on the ship for a long enough time, the, the founder, the capsized ship, under the water, that they stayed there for a long enough time that they would have to be dead. That they don't have time to tell, he says. But here he says, in our case of the, of the Titanic that, 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 that was uh, gashed open and eventually capsized, he says, we don't, have to, we don't have to stay for an hour to make sure they stayed underwater the whole time. All they have to see is the beginning of the accident 
that the ship was being flooded by water from the outside. Once they saw that there were huge gashes torn and water was flowing in, that's obvious. That doesn't require uh, long-term, obser- long-term observation, he says. that uh, they, Once they saw that, that was good enough, he says. To wait on the ship to see that people were underwater long enough to be dead, that's something that, that we can't believe in. But in our case, he says, the, in our case, he says, the, to, to see that there was a gash in the ship and water was flooding in, that they can reliably report. Again, I, I don't understand the argument. Yeah, there's no doubt that the, that the Titanic was torn apart and water flooded in. But lots of people made it off the ship. It took an hour, it took a couple of hours for it to sink. And during the time that it was sinking, they had, they had a chance to load uh, all the lifeboats and, uh, and, and, get them, and, get them, and get them off. And not all of them were full to capacity. Many of them were underfilled. But they, but, but they were able to launch you know, some 16 or 20 lifeboats, and, then, and many people jumped into the water or, and so on. So hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people, did make it off. They, they, they made it off with, uh, either into the water or into lifeboats. So they're obviously, the fact, that the, the fact that the survivors can accurately report that the ship was torn apart with a huge gash into which the water was flowing in, that's good, that's important to know that, but that hardly tells you that anybody was stuck aboard the ship. People had hours in which, in which not, not, you know, 10 hours, but they had a couple of hours in which to get off the ship, and many people did get off the ship. So why this is all relevant, to the, what, that they can report that the ship was torn apart, if we don't actually know whether, the, whether, the, whether any given person, like Mr. Meisner, made it off or not, I'm not sure how valuable their evidence is, but this is what he says, that it's, it's, it's important that the witnesses can tell us that the ship was gashed open and the people were on board the ship where it was, where it was torn open, which is certainly true, they certainly could report that. He goes on, and he brings parallels to this. He says that the idea of the Mabit is, why does the Mabit say that people who are on the ship when it goes down can be presumed dead? It's not like Mayim Shein himself. So the Rabbi Meskin explains, we saw one explanation last week, or Yisrael Hanan. It's a, it's a legal svar of Kan Nimsa Kan Haya. They can be presumed to have stayed wherever they were. Rabbi Meskin says it's more of a practical argument that since there are walls to the ship and people get stuck in there, many people were trapped on board, couldn't get out, especially from the lower decks. They Gates were locked, uh, the, the people couldn't, couldn't find their way out. Many people were stuck on board because they couldn't find their way out, so they couldn't get out. But uh, that's the basic idea of the Mabit, that, it, that, that if a person is inside a cabin, is inside a ship when it gets flooded, we say he couldn't have gotten out. He says, and uh, we, we have the Mabit, he says, that particularly since the whole Chumrah of Mayim Shein Lemsof, even though we're Machmer from Mayim Shein Lemsof, it's only a Chumrah Drabanan, and now we're not even sure this is Mayim Shein Lemsof. It might be called Mayim Shiesh Lemsof, which is Mutter, because he couldn't have gotten out of the ship at all. So we have uh, because the walls of the ship trapped people and kept them in. We can call that Mayim Shiesh Lemsof, and we can be Makel. He brings other postkim who say that in cases of shipwreck, if there's any additional reason to believe it would have been difficult or impossible for him to swim clear and, and get out alive, you can be Makel. So, for example, if you had someone... Somebody was tied to a ship, either pirates or the authorities had shackled him to a, to a, to a, to a board of the ship, and then the ship sank, you don't have to worry that he swam, because, it's, uh, because when, when, when you have that his legs were tied to, uh, to a board, even if he found something to, to grab onto a raft, he still would have trouble making it swimming anywhere with his legs shackled, so he can be presumed to be dead. So this is the first basis of Rabbi Meskin Tetter. Again, we saw last week, Ritzel Khanan also relied on the Mabit, in his case, of the Simbria. Ritzel Khanan's case, it was easier to understand why. In both cases, the accident happened in the middle of the night, but in the Simbria, there was reason to believe that most people were stuck on the ship. People, the ship went down, the divers found a whole mass of bodies, were still on board the ship. People who didn't make it out to the lifeboats apparently were trapped aboard the ship, mostly. Again, I'm not sure what the facts in the Simbria were, why it was so impossible to believe that people just jumped out and swam clear as well, Rizal Khan dealt with that, but Rabbi Meskin is claiming in the Titanic that there is good reason to believe that people, other than those in the lifeboats, is good reason to believe that they went down with the ship and were trapped and stuck on the ship, which again is a somewhat uh, problematic assumption. It's certainly true. It's certainly true that many people were trapped on the ship. It's certainly true that probably dozens or probably hundreds of people were trapped on the ship, but it's also equally true that hundreds of people got clear of the ship. 700 in lifeboats, hundreds more in the water. So again, it's not so clear how, you know, how much basis we have to conclude that people were trapped on the ship when it went down, when we know that the thousands of people, a thousand or more people probably did get clear of the ship. So that, that's his first hatter. He himself admits that there is, for, he, he has technical reasons for why his hatter might not be so 
reliable anyway. So he proceeds with another heter. So now he, now he gets into another angle of heter. He says, Another line of reasoning for leniency, to be able to presume that poor Mr. Meisner was dead, and poor Mrs. Meisner can remarry. He says, Karasi Mikhtav, I read a letter, Shalhatsir Harushin, the Russian diplomat, envoy, consul of some sort, Asher Yosheb London, the Russian ambassador in London, had a, he wrote a letter that he wrote in England, that he wrote in London and England, he wrote a letter to Mrs. Meisner. She was his, uh, she, she was a citizen of Russia, I guess, Ukraine, so, the, so her, her, the ambassador in London was relaying information and, uh, trying to uh, provide help and assistance to his, to his nationals. So he writes, L'ha'isha Tzivya Meisner, Meir Nova Praga, Pelach Herson. Uh, he wrote her a letter saying, Balech Shimon Meisner, Nosebasvina Titanic, your husband Shimon Meisner traveled aboard the Titanic, Benitva, and he drowned, he sank. Ve'eshtadl ba'adeich, I will, I will strive on your behalf, L'ha'asig mehanadavosh, n'esasfil u'tarach mishpachos o'mlalosh, l'anvamba Titanic, there were funds that were raised for relief, for uh, relief of those who, had, uh, who were left bereft, who had lost family, lost husbands, and so, and so on in the Titanic. So the Russian ambassador told her he will try to, uh, to obtain some of these relief funds for her, for Mrs. Meisner. That was the letter that the Russian ambassador wrote to Mrs. Meisner. Said, now, the halacha is, when it comes to Aguna, we don't normally believe non-Jews. We, when we require testimony, we normally believe, we normally require Jewish testimony. However, this is one of the most famous halachas of Aguna. There is a concept called Mesiach Lefitumo. If a person, a non-Jew, is someone who is, uh, if someone who is, if someone who is, um, if, if, if someone who normally wouldn't have credibility, in, but, he, but he speaks not for the deliberate purpose of allowing the woman to remarry, he speaks just casually from some other context, either just gossip, or in this case has to do with relief funds, not with the halacha of aguna and remarrying, then, we, then the non-Jew is believed as well. As long as we don't believe that he's consciously trying to, uh, to ab- obtain a, a halachic verdict for the, for the woman, as long as he has some other goal in his speech, then we allow the... We, then we allow the then, 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 then we do believe the testimony of the non-Jew. Says Rabbi Meskin, the Russian consul is Messiah Vitumo. He wasn't coming to say anything about her permission to remarry according to Halacha. He was just coming to tell her that he's trying to get relief funds for her. And therefore he should be Neman because of Messiah Vitumo. He goes on, he then takes this, he goes back and forth, bringing in his previous arguments, and he, and, and he tries to argue that combined with the fact that we have the Mabit, even if we don't accept the Mabit totally, but the fact that he might have been stuck on board the ship and trapped in his cabin, trapped on board the ship, is at least a suffix, even if we don't accept the Mabit totally, he says. He says here, certainly the, the non-Jews who are in charge of the ship, when they report who died, who survived, who, who didn't survive, they are certainly Messiah Lefitumo, he says. The way they arrive at their, at their uh, conclusions, he says, they look at the people who are near Shmu Bapinka Shalahem, people who are registered in their, in their ledgers, in their roles, that, uh, that they died and drowned. He says, the question is, am I am so for Elam, so if he says, he says, the Anoshim Shal Baliha Anoshim Hanosim. The men of the ship who rescued the Titanic, that would have been the Carpathia. The Carpathia was the ship that steamed in the next morning and picked up all the survivors from the lifeboats. So the people on the ship who rescued the, the survivors, they definitely saw the, the numbers of travelers, who, and they had names, and they checked them against the list of the passengers, that, they, that, that when, when they purchased tickets, they had to give their names, and so on. So they certainly had records of who made it, who made it out, and who, made, who, who, was, who was rescued on board the lifeboats, who, who wasn't, and therefore, and, and, and they're all Messiah Vitumo. Therefore, once again, so in this part of the tshuva, he resorts to the, the testimony and the reports of the non-Jews involved in the record-keeping of the ship and the Carpathia, the rescue ship, and so on, that they recorded everyone who survived, and if they didn't find, if they didn't find Mr. Meisner, we can safely assume that he didn't make it to the lifeboat, he was probably trapped on board the ship, he's probably dead, and once again, he says that's an argument in favor of the assumption that he is dead. Then he brings a very famous, very important tshuva of the Chassam Sofer. 
This is really, he segues here into another hatter. He goes on, I'm skipping now about a half dozen pages, but toward the end of his tshuva, he brings a tshuva of the, he has some other study hatter, which we're not going to get into. Toward the end of the tshuva, he brings a very famous chasam sefer, which is, which is a, a core hatter in, in many, many cases of modern aguna. The chasam sefer says that the Gemara itself discusses the possibility that why can't we be lenient in aguna questions because even if we don't know what happened when he hit the water. But it's days later now. It's weeks later. It's months later. It's a year later. If he's really alive, why haven't we heard from him? Why hasn't he come home? Why hasn't he called, called home? Why have the newspapers reported that he was picked up somewhere? So the Gemara actually broaches the possibility of relying on that, particularly with regard to a Tzurv Merabanan, to a Talmud Chacham, who were assumed to be notable individuals back then, and there would be reports if they survived. The Gemara actually brings that possibility up. The Gemara rejects it and says, we don't rely on that. It's, it's possible, it's possible that, that he made it out and that, uh, nobody, and that nobody noticed. For some reason, he's not coming home. And once again, just like they were machmer for Mayim Shein Lemsof, they were machmer that even though it's very unlikely that if he made it out, we haven't heard from him, nevertheless, it's possible, and we can't rule out that possibility. Says the Chasim Sofer, that was true in Talmudic times. However, he says, today, nishtanu ha'itim, times have changed. My father always likes to, to point out how, in some cases in halacha, we, we're very, very traditional. We say that what the, what the Talmud says is and will be forever. Rav Salvechik would talk about ontological facts, about, about psychology, and so on. In other cases, we say, oh, things were different, times have changed, the circumstances are different today. Halacha evolves in, 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 uh, in response to changing circumstances. So the Chasim Sofer is very much in this context, in the latter camp. He says, times have changed since the time of Chazal. We have postal service, we have newspapers, we have, uh, we have records, we have the telegram, we have the telegram, and so on. I'm not sure he mentions the telegram, but later posts can do. He says, we have all kinds of more advanced communications, the world is flatter than it used to be, it's much more interconnected, and so on. Therefore, today, the poss- even, even the Trumas Adeshin, writing several hundred years earlier, in the 15th century, already wrote that in his time, the, the, the bonds between different communities and, and communications were stronger than the Talmudic times, and therefore there's a much stronger argument that if someone has not been heard from, he's probably dead. And the Chassam Sofer said in his time, 200 years ago, that argument was all the, all, all the stronger because the, 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 the sophistication of communications is much more than it used to be. And the Chassam Sofer therefore argued that, uh, again, based on the Gemara, the Gemara already entertained such a possibility, and in our time it's much stronger. So once again, the, the Chassam Sofer made the argument that if you haven't heard from someone today, there's a very strong case to be made that he's probably dead, because the idea that he washed up ashore somewhere and hasn't been heard from is very, very implausible. Obviously, it's not, liter- it's not, it's not literally impossible. If the person, for some reason, wants to hide, he has, uh, he, he has, if he has some reason to hide, he could do it. Certainly, they do that in fiction and uh, in television shows and so on, but even in the real world, people do occasionally drop off the grid and, 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 and disappear, becoming harder and harder with cameras everywhere and Twitter and whatnot, but it's still possible. But says Rabbi Meskin, he says, that is a very strong argument, he says, that, the, that is a very strong argument that he's probably dead, once again. Benidon Didon, he says, that nami it's a very powerful argument to argue that ilu if he's alive he would have presented himself and that's uh, even better than the case of the gemara he says now he refers once again to the specifics of our case everyone knows this is one of the most famous uh, bits of lore from the titanic not lore it's true Women and children first. It wasn't actually a law, but it was a minhag, so to speak. It was a, a moray of a society of that time. That, not necessarily the Torah's idea, but this is the idea that was prevalent in Western society at that time. Women and children first. He says, Yadu al everyone knows that women were saved first. Women were loaded into lifeboats first. And he says, Echad meha nashim, there was one man, Lavashis Atzma Bibigde Nashim who disguised himself by wearing women's clothes, and he, was, and he was saved that way. So, we'll discuss why that's relevant in a moment, but just to comment on that, just because it's an interesting bit of trivia, this is actually apparently a myth that was widespread at the time. 
Snopes.com has a lengthy uh, exploration of this. There were numerous stories about men who were accused of having cowardly saved themselves by disguising themselves as women. They're not actually true by and large. You can read the details in the handout, but by and large, this did not happen or it has not been documented. There were one or two cases of men who wore women's clothing, but apparently they were just put on them in the lifeboat after the fact. There isn't really any solid documented case. It was reported in the newspaper. Imeskin is correct that such stories were reported in the newspaper. People actually contemplated suing the newspapers for libeling them by claiming that they had been so cowardly. But the, either way, whether it actually happened or not is not really relevant. Rameskin's point is, he says, that the... Rameskin's point is that we read stories about people going to, taking such desperate measures to save themselves and then being reported to have, having done so in the newspapers, he says. He says, There was no other way to survive. They were loading women onto the lifeboat. If you were a man, you were not going to make it. If this guy tried something similar, he, he, he dressed up as a woman and survived, they would have reported him. Again, I'm not sure how that's relevant exactly. The question is not that he made it into a lifeboat. We know the people in the lifeboats. The question is whether he survived by grabbing onto a raft and not being picked up by the Carpathia, having made it to shore some other way. I mean, why it's relevant... We know who was in the lifeboats. So who, who was in the lifeboats? We have witnesses. We have, it was all documented. Why the story is relevant, that, that he didn't cross-dress, I'm not really sure. But once again, he returns to the main line, and he says, It is a compelling argument, he says, that had he been alive, he would have told us, because the couple, the Shalom Bayis, was good. This is a very common point that's made in Agunat Shuvas. If someone disappears, and you want to rely on this presumption, at least in part, that he's probably dead, because otherwise, why hasn't he come home? That rests on the assumption that he loves his wife and would be happy to return to her. If he was looking to get out of the marriage anyway, maybe he took the shipwreck as a convenient opportunity to disappear and to start a new life somewhere else. So Postkim often, based on the Gemara, Postkim often, so, so post, post, I'm not sure based on the Gemara or not, but Postkim often make this point that they emphasize that the couple was happy together and therefore it is that much more inexplicable that he's really alive and is not coming home. So, Rabbi Maskin tells us that the couple was happy together, they were B'Shalom of Yedidus, and therefore, he says, his bottom line is, again, we've skipped a lot of the tshuva, but his bottom line is, B'tziruf kol ha'aterim, with all these ha'aterim together, nirilani astaiti, dehai itza ha'aluva, this poor woman, v'omlala, this poor, this poor bereft woman, muteres li nase le'ish, she is allowed to get married, l'halacha v'lolamaisa. Rabbi Maskin, at this point at least, said this is his opinion, lahalacha, but Lamaisa, he was not giving her an actionable heter, he was not willing to commit himself to a heter, at least not until he, until he consulted his great uh, teacher, Rav Itzla of Panovich. So Rav Itzla of Panovich's tshuva is also printed in the Beis Yaakov. He, it, it's, a, it's a relatively short tshuva, it's only a page, I've only reproduced, and I've only reproduced some of it, but he says... He, he, this is what my great, uh, my great teacher, the great Gon Hamiti, Rabitzik Yaakov Amachun Rabitzla, Panovicher, the Gaivad and Ram of Panovich. He says, wrote to Meskin, he says, he starts by making a very interesting uh, disclaimer, interesting apology. He says, I delayed somewhat returning your tshuva. He says, because even though Aguna is very, very important, he's Indian Aguna, he says, Amnam, he says, it's true that the. It's, it's, it's a critical issue to resolve. Aguna is very, very important. However, he says, that just means it's important to not uh, let the matter hang indefinitely. She shouldn't have to remain single her whole life. Avali says, It's not time is of the essence. You know, it's, the, the answer is not critical to get the answer tomorrow. Obviously, if you're a poor woman whose life has just been destroyed and you want to move on with your life, you might feel that getting a halachic answer is, uh, is imperative and getting one uh, pronto is important. But Ravitz says, if she gets an answer a week or two later, it's not, you know, again, she knows her husband's dead, but practically she assumes her husband's dead. In terms of halachic permission to remarry, he didn't feel it was imperative to answer on the spot. Again, you can debate that. You know, how would we feel, I guess, if we uh, consulted a rav and, and, and were left waiting because it wasn't really so important to get an answer right away? Ravitz Lepanovich says he didn't think it was critical to, get, to give an answer right away. And uh, on the other hand, he says the issue is very chamer, it's a very serious matter. And we don't, we don't answer, we don't fire, we don't shoot from the hip on these questions. We have to have yeshuv, we have to have careful contemplation. Particularly here, he says, yeah, for reasons I don't fully understand, he says, 
There's not much to say, he says. So if there's not much to say, I'm not sure why he couldn't answer right away. Okay, I'm not sure. But he says, again, that there's a lot of stuff that's disjointed in these letters. I'm, I'm not sure how accurate everything here is, but uh, he writes... He, he writes back to Ameskin, his student, he says, you brought them a bit, that Mayim Shainla himself, if he was on the ship, you can assume that he went down uh, with the ship. So again, we saw it's not so simple, as Ritzel Hanan said, as Ameskin said, there are those who disagree with him a bit, says Ritzel Aponovitcher, even though Mabit is not compelling, there, there's room for disagreement, but Mikomokom Mistavrimheim, it's plausible, because Mayim Shainla himself is such a humra to begin with, and... Uh, and therefore, once, any, once there's any additional basis for leniency, there's a good case to be made that we should jump on it and say that Mayim Shainla himself is such a chiddush, once we have any significant variation from the classic case of Mayim Shainla himself, we can presume him dead. And Kedai Huarav Mabit, Mabit is a great enough authority, we can rely on him, it's only Drabanan, Beisad Chach Gadol Kazeh, it's such a desperate situation. Even on a Das Yachid you can rely when you're in a desperate situation. Even though Asian Sish is Daraisa, but at this point it's Drabanan. Once the once we've reached the once we've reached the level of of Mayim Shen Lamsof and so on, we're dealing with Drabanans, and therefore Mabit is a solid enough authority you can rely on him, and therefore Rabbi Slapanovich felt you can be lenient. Uvavada he says Lachatchila Tzarech Latares Aguna Basin Shel Shlosha. A single Rav shouldn't issue a hetri. You should have a full base din of three, and that's what he writes. He sounds like he was inclined to, to be lenient. It's hard to fully ascertain the facts and details. I mean, every, every case of Agun is based on imperfect information. I'm not sure what he felt he was missing here, more facts about the shipwreck. I'm not, I'm not sure why he was so oddly hesitant here, but he says that there's basis for leniency, you should get a based in. Apparently, though, he supported Rav Meskin enough that even though in his original letter Rav Meskin wrote, he doesn't want to be Matir Lamaisa. Apparently, he was encouraged enough by this response that he was willing to issue a Heter Lemaisa. Rabbi Meskin has a follow-up note where he deals once more with this question. The second Shuva, at least, is dated Yom Gimel, Vav Tishrei, Tafrei Shayin Gimel. Tafrei Shayin Gimel is the year, is the year 713. We're in, uh, we're in 5782 now, that's 713. That would have been still, uh, still, that would have been the very end of 1912, right, right after Rosh Hashanah of Tafresh and Gimel. It's still the year of 1912. This was not too long after the, the events of the sinking itself. So he discusses the question, he returns to the question one more time in this, in this last discussion. He says, in the reports that Shimon Meisner was dead, they don't list his father's name. They list his last name the way modern people are named, but they don't list his father's name. In, classic, in, the, in, in the classic halachas of, of Edus, we usually want to see a father's name. However, he says, that's not such a problem. If, they, if there's one passenger named Shimon Meisner and he's clearly identified, the fact that we don't have his father's name doesn't, uh, doesn't bother us, he says. Then he brings Rizal Hanan's tshuva about the Simbria that we discussed last week. He says, he says that, that, again, if he was, if he was on the ship when it, uh, when it foundered and he was inside the cabin, we can assume he went down with the ship. He says, and getting back to our case, he says, we know, we know his name. His name was Shimon Meisner. We don't know anybody else in the ship named this way. Even though we don't know his father's name, that's a good enough reason, he says, that we can assume that, that the, the person reported dead as Shimon Meisner is the one who, is, uh, who, 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 is, who, who we're talking about. Again, the, the question still is that when they report he's dead, they didn't recover the body. They just meant that these are the only ones we recovered, so everyone else is presumed to be dead. But they didn't, they didn't, they didn't actually identify most of the bodies. Only, only a small fraction of the bodies were actually recovered and identified. So why exactly uh, he cares that the, that the government reported him as dead is not so clear to me, because they weren't doing it based on eyewitness testimony. I'm not sure if he knew that. And then he goes on and he says, In the books of the captain, he says, Nirsham kol Titanic. They, they had records of all the, pass, all the travelers, all the passengers of the Titanic, Kefisha Musser, Latir Harashi, Harassi, like the names were turned over to the Russian ambassador, Hayoshi Belundin. And the Chassam Sofer says that even though, again, we said before that non-Jews are normally not believed, so earlier he said, it's called Messiah Fitumo, that he was, if he's not making a halachic statement, a statement with halachic purpose, he's credible. Another story he says here is that official Official non-Jews, non-Jews operating in official capacities are credible because they act in, with a certain professional gravitas 
and they would not uh, perjure themselves, they would not lie. And he brings Rabbi Sulchan himself, and another tshuva, brings the halacha that our koshal akum, an ordinary non-Jew who tells you a story in a bar, has limited credibility. But an official non-Jew in an official capacity, a court, has credibility, because that's dinah mechusadina, they're required by law to be honest and not to sign falsely. And therefore he says, neman al Shimon Meisner hanal, Therefore, the official governmental reports about Shimon Meisner's demise are credible, even without Mesiyach Lofitumo, that is his last word on the subject. Again, I'm not so sure how, not so sure how reliable, how reliable, uh, how reliable the, the, the government was, if they themselves were not, were not testifying that they, that they, uh, that, that they saw him dead. The body, according to Wikipedia, the bodies of most of Titanic's victims were never recovered. They, they found debris on the floor and stuff 73 years later when they dove down, but most, most of the bodies were never recovered. So why, the government just assumed that if he was presumed to be on the ship and he didn't turn up, he's presumed dead. If that's not enough for halacha, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why the authority of the Arcos is, uh, it adds anything. But okay, this is Rabbi Meskin's series of Eterim, along with that of his Rebbe, Rabbi Zilaponovitcher, that first of all you have the Mabit, that if someone was on board a ship when it went down, when it was flooded, he's presumed to have gotten stuck on the ship and didn't make it into the water even. That's debatable. Beisiosi have disagreed, but it's at least a suffix. Mayim Shainlam Sof is only Drabanan. And uh, the fact that he hasn't turned up, and it's, uh, it's been a while, he hasn't turned up. We have good communications today. It's another reason to presume him dead. And for these reasons and a variety of other reasons, it seems that Rabbi Meskin and his Rebbe, Rabbi Slavonovich, were willing to permit the woman to remarry. As we mentioned, uh, she did remarry a year uh, that, that she emigrated to the U.S., and several years later, she, and several years later, she actually, uh, she actually did remarry. She remarried, remarried in 1915, which was about three, year, three years later, to, uh, to and, and uh, she, she, she remarried in the U.S. So, so this, is, this is, as I said, the, this is the one tshuva, the one tshuva of Aguna that we have from the, from the, from the Titanic, as I mentioned earlier, Rabbi Meskin himself, after, after living in, in Panovich and then later in, uh, in uh, Nova Praga, he was the Rav there for 11 years. Eventually he, he left, he went to Panovich, he went elsewhere. In 1924, so about 12 years after the story, Rabbi Meskin emigrated to the U.S. His first shul was the Chai Adam Shul in Burlington. He was the, he was, uh, the, Rav, year for, the Rav there for seven years, from 24 to 31 moved to New York, and he, was the, and he was 24, for 24 years, he was the Rav in, New, he was the Rav in the Bronx in, the, in, in a shul called Beth Medrash HaGadol Nusuch Sfard Vitaras HaMeshpacha. I've heard of the Shomer Shabbos shuls in, in New York, and there's a shul called, apparently, Nusuch Sfard Vitaras HaMeshpacha. He was the Rav there for 24 years, finally passed away in 1956. Yehizichro Baruch.